Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Ravellas, um, I know some of the streams are working here and other are kind of wonky, but it is what it happens when we don't have the El Cuco working his masterful ways and uh, on the airwaves. So without further ado, we have the man of the hour who needs no introduction at this point. It is the one and only Velas. Velas, what's up, buddy? How are you? Hey, brother. How you doing? I got my automated notification says D-Live D is up. So for those Good. of you that are listening to us live, hello. Yes. For those of you that are listening to the rebroadcast, hello again. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Velas, lots going on. Uh, we have all sorts of shortages. <clears throat> we have all sorts of problems, carnage globally. The system is buckling. You have... Uh, Right now, at this point, uh, the target is well painted. More and more people are being are, w- are waking up to the World Economic Jerk Off Forum, uh, and they are waking up to the Nazi collaborator uh, um, in chief, the one and only Klaus Schwab. Uh, we have the situation in Ukraine. We have we just got so much stuff going on. I don't know where you want to begin, man. There's a lot going on. Yeah, we're uh, we're all over the board this week, and and uh, Mike Moore had been warning uh, this was going to be a, a news filled week, and not necessarily uh, what he called a, a, a positive one. Uh, but we'll see what we can do to make the best of that. I gotta say, I uh, I was watching V last night, a couple of clips. I was having some insomnia, and I was I was watching some of the Vice news. Now, I know Vice has kind of gone up and down and up and down as far as both their quality and where, where they are. Uh, they used to be independent, now they're part of HBO or whatever. But you've often made the comment that you feel the United States is heading towards Venezuela. And yeah. two things pop out based on some of the Vice um, you know, news, news clips or, or little documentaries I was watching the other day. The first is, um, and it's a, it's a somewhat unsettling data point, but it's a data point nonetheless, which is, um, one of the economics development people I knew in Washington used to say, you can always kind of tell what's going on in certain countries. Like for instance, friends of mine in Miami always joke about are people in town to rent or to buy. So for instance, when Argentinians or Brazilians roll into Miami, they always know that they're just renting. Well, what does that mean? Well, they're, they're renting because um, things are about to get dicey in their home countries. And so they want to hang out in the United States until the, until the, the, the storm passes. But when Venezuelans started showing up, they were, they were buying permanently. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of also happening right now with Colombia. Um, and that was an indicator that whatever the problems were down there, that it was going to be something uh, very funny, steely Dan, the U S is screaming down the highway to hell um, that the problems down there were going to be more, more permanent. And in a strange twist, this is one of the reasons why a lot of Latin money, has kind of tapped out Florida and uh, Georgia from what I've been told. And they're moving, they're moving North um, hitting places like Tennessee and Kentucky and Indiana, Ohio and Michigan, and, and a little bit of Iowa uh, to find a better return uh, on their money, which, which living out here, I, I support. Um, but you know, that's, that's one of those kind of subtle data points. And then the other thing is, is, is um, 
you've got a lot of, if you've ever been to Europe or you know anything about Eastern Germany, uh, there's a bunch of car parks and stuff that are right there on the border between Germany and Poland. Yeah. And the reason why is, is because it's, it's like mini brothels because you've got a lot of women that, that the economic situation in Eastern Europe for many years has been so difficult that they, they come near the border or across the border for prostitution. Well, one of the demographics in South America that's been changing lately is, is, is a lot of, of women from Venezuela are coming across various borders of South American countries uh, for prostitution because mm-hmm. of the economic situation of Venezuela. So that's, that was a takeaway. But then the, the other thing that rung true to me about your comment about Venezuela is I was kind of laughing to myself while, last night while I was watching it because I thought V isn't going far enough. It's not that the United States is becoming Venezuela. Now, now give me a little room on this one. It's that the world is becoming El Salvador. And, <laughs> yeah. and what I mean by that is, is that uh, Vice has a very good piece, uh, you know, as often as the case. I agree with most of it. There's a few data points I'd like to argue with them about. But on the whole, the president of, Venezuela, of El Salvador, you know, and he's been very in the news a lot because he's, he's a former marketing person and he's very good at marketing what he's doing. And if you know anything at all about El Salvador's history, it is rough. I mean, it is, it is really rough. It's always been the capital San Salvador and the joke about the five families who run the country. And then everybody else is just kind of screwed. Um, But, you know, and he's been heavy on the Bitcoin thing and similar, but they were doing interviews with like these, these uh, narco leaders and these various um, narcotics trafficking organizations about Sometimes they literally turn up the murder count just to remind the government the government's not in charge. And the thing that popped into my mind was several things. A, I got a flashback to a number of analysts talking about the U.S. involvement in Iraq right after the 03 invasion, where some very top people made the comment that, um, including Robert Pelton, who said the United States in, in Iraq was just another armed faction. Like, it's not like you, the United States, are trying to bring peace to the... It's like, you don't understand. You've got Iran. You've got uh, Iraqis with their own agendas. You've got Saudi money coming in. You've got all these armed camps, and they're all fighting inside Iraq for their own whatever. And the United States is just like there. It's like, you're not you're not anybody important. You're just another gang. You're just another Crip or Bloods gang that's on yeah. the street. <laughs> and so I thought, the world is becoming El Salvador. Mm. Because we've got... Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum, and we've got Davos, and we've got the folks out in Colorado at the, whatever the crap the seminar is out there that the Carlisle Group always throws each year. We've got these people, and they think they're in charge. Now, they're doing a lot of stuff that we, the little people, are feeling. We certainly are feeling it between inoculations and everything else. But it's like, you all have lost such control of the global economy. I mean, you're doing things that are negatively impacting us. And it looks on paper, to kind of paraphrase London Paul, it looks on paper like what you're doing, like you're running things. Right. And on a certain level, you are. But you've so lost control that the world is now just a giant jumble of, of armed factions. You've got, you've got the arms industry. You've got narcotics. You've got very powerful families. I mean, I've often joked on prior shows that like you go to certain parts of the United States, you know, there's a joke down in New Mexico. I, I knew this long before I went down there uh, last March. There's a joke in New Mexico that, that basically three mining families run that whole state. Mm. 
And that when Harry Reid showed up on TV and said, ooh, I, I fell down and went boom, that's because even though Harry Reid was in Nevada, that some people went over from, from the rumor is they went over from New Mexico to go beat the crap out of Harry Reid because he voted in a way they didn't want. Mm. And if you really think about that, it's like you've got a major mover and shaker. Take the political parties out of it. you got a major mover and shaker in U.S. government. And yet even this guy has to answer to certain factions of the United States that are either heavily engaged in land or mining or uh, generational wealth, whatever it might be. And it kind of yeah. goes to our joke about the, and it's, it's no joke, to our <laughs> predictive comment about the balkanization of the United States, that it's not just the Balkans, but it's like even, even within what is becoming the, the new Bosnia, Serbia, and Croatian factions inside the United States, you've still got other little, other little sub-factions. So we'll see, we'll see where, that, where that takes us. Um, so public service announcement, uh, we have a new name to, to, or a new phrase to become uh, familiar with. Uh, certainly was a new one to me. Dead naming. Uh, this is the act of referring to a non-adult school student by their biological name instead of their chosen self-identified gender name. Oh, God. Are you kidding me? No, I'm dead serious, dude. I knew you'd have that Don't reaction. Don't name me. Exactly. Well, it's worse than that. It popped up recently in a Virginia parent's confrontation with a school board because the school board issued new rules for students where if it's like if you more than twice refer to a, a student who has a different self-chosen gender name, you can be expelled. And the, the parents, quite rightly, were showing up at school board meetings saying, what in the absolute hell is this bullshit? Because, I mean, it's, it's, it's young, young kids. I mean, they, they change their mood based on their, their sugar, sugar rush at the moment. Exactly. I had a thought about uh, NATO membership that came to me this last weekend. Um, where was NATO membership for Hungary in 1956 when the Soviet Union rolled across the border? Or Czechoslovakia in 68? Non-existent. Or, exactly. Or Afghanistan in 79 or Bosnia in the 90s? Yep. If, if quote-unquote, folks, the answer to a country embroiled in violence, uh, especially if it involves Russia, is to give them NATO membership, then, then why now with Ukraine? Why not all these other occasions? Now, yes, I get it. Afghanistan's not in Europe. I'm trying to make a point. But at the same time, Turkey isn't in Europe either, and they're a NATO member. Mm-hmm. Of course, as I said on, on a prior show, Turkey's good enough to die in NATO's wars, but not good enough to be a member of the EU. And as you may have all seen in the news, Turkey, for some strange, insane reason, has renamed the country using a more Turkish-like spelling to avoid confusion between the country of Turkey and the bird. Um, I don't know if the government ministers were bored or, or what. What do they rename it to? It's, it's more like Turkey. It's, it's, if you look it up, they've got all the little hyphens and dashes and stuff. It's like, a, it's like an I-Y-E on the end of the name now. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, I see it, I see it, I see it. It's the traditional name for the Turkic people. Yes, it's, um, it's, it's like folks that name. T-U-R-K-I-Y-E, Turkey. Exactly. It is Turkey. I am from Turkey. Turkey. Yes, it's like folks I know who grew up in Hawaii and would often correct me uh, about the pronunciation of of Hawaii as Hawaii because that's the Polynesian pronunciation. Hawaii. Okay, you do you. <laughs> um, on your shortages comment, V, 
uh, I wanted to dial down on a couple of data points on that. The first is, uh, I know many of you out there probably saw, uh, Kokoto, Minnesota, we had that fire this week at one of the nation's largest commercial egg farms. Um, they say that about 200,000 birds were lost uh, in that fire. Nothing nothing to see here, folks. I love it. Fires everywhere. And we have athletes dropping dead from heart attacks. I'm sure that's all coincidence. We oh, have yeah. processing plants going up in flames. That's all coincidence. We have train derailments that are carrying fertilizer supplies. That's all coincidence. Everything's coincidence. Nothing to see here, folks. But wait, there's more. Uh, I was reaching out to a number of folks I know in the supply chain world and in the trucking and transportation world and was asking them. And I said, well, like a lot of things, um, <laughs> good one, Gilbert Nowak. Um, I was asking them, I said, look, I'm, I'm catching news articles about diesel exhaust fluid. Uh, but what's the reality? You all live this shit. Is this just the media trying to drum up a, an article or is there more to it? Now, uh, just a refresher. Diesel exhaust fluid or DEF fluid, uh, if you've ever been in a truck stop, if you're traveling across the United States and filling up your vehicle, uh, I used to own a BMW diesel. And in my case, I just put a little little bottle of the stuff in like once with every oil change every 15,000 miles because it's a much smaller engine. But on on the big tractor-trailer trucks, they got to put in a couple of gallons of this stuff. And if you've ever been motoring down the highway or even sitting in traffic and you see a big Class 8 sitting next to you, you'll often notice that next to that big silver saddle tank is like a smaller little black or blue tank. It usually has a blue cap, fuel filler yeah. cap on there. And that's the, that's the DEF tank. Now, loosely put, what happens is, is, is the diesel exhaust fluid, it's urea, or basically pee, yeah. and it's sprayed into the exhaust stream. And what it does is it neutralizes a lot of the, the kind of the negative elements of the emissions and makes the emissions out of out of both diesel uh, cars and trucks a lot a lot cleaner. Now we're running low, considerably low across the United States. Now you'll hear the answer is is well we we get most of our def uh, fluid from Russia, and it's like yeah, but this we're not talking about potash, and we're not talking about gold, and we're not talking about platinum. We're talking about something that. Not to be indelicate, but it's like I could be collecting all of the waste products out of a hospital, a school, or a prison and and make the stuff. I mean, that's pretty much simply what it is. Um, the problem, though, is, is that for these Class 8 or Class 7 trucks, your Class 7s are like your straight trucks, the big panel trucks that you see, like, deliver furniture in your neighborhood or whatever. Yeah. Class 8s are the ones with the tractor and trailer on it. Um, the computer control systems on those trucks are designed to start cutting back on the horsepower if if you're getting low or you've run out of out of def fluid. Same thing on a Ford Power Stroke or um, a Duramax on a Chevrolet pickup truck or the Cummins engines on a on a Dodge, um, and that's a problem. So the CEO of Flying J Truck Stops gave testimony recently on several items, including rail firms that are slowing down delivery of cargo, uh, or other other intentional delays in transporting death fluid. And he was basically saying, can somebody please explain to me why this, you know, it's my age old thing of who gave the order. Mm-hmm. Now, just for reference, a tractor trailer truck needs about a gallon of death fluid for every hundred miles they drive. So if we start running, well, we are running low, but if this starts impacting now, it's the age old thing of, okay, you may have drivers, and you may have have the diesel fuel, but if you don't have the death fluid, the trucks can't roll. But 
you need the DEF fluid for locomotives as well. And now, thanks to the new rules on transoceanic shipping, cargo ships, in some cases, especially if they're within the territorial limits of a certain you know, country's borders, they're supposed to be using DEF fluid. But the two places it will impact, especially here in North America, will be rail and with trucks. So, again, another item where we got to keep an eye on this. But wait, there's more. We also had a hack yeah. of a major supply chain and logistics company called Bloom Global. Okay. Uh, my thanks to one of our listeners who brought this to my attention. They manage systems for many of the shipping firms out there uh, through like web hosted tools where you don't have the software, you know, on your servers at your place of work or what have you. You just log into a website. Well, they got hacks, which meant that many of their clients weren't able to log in and move cargo around. So I'm oversimplifying, but it's like we got a perfect storm, folks, and statistically impossible that all these events are just happening, which, which begs an even bigger question, which is uh, who's paying who to make this take place? I mean, what, what kind of uh, company out there bills itself as like, we're, we'll, uh, we'll go hack a uh, transport company for you or we'll go interfere with death fluid? Yeah, this is clearly strategic, man. It is. This is. This is not like, all right, I'm going to, you know, hack into the school's computer and change grades or I'm going to steal somebody's identity. That, that, that's criminal level stuff where, you know, you're hacking Target in order to get like 100 million user IDs and, and, and credit card information. That's one thing. But when you're targeting um, specific things and all of it has to do with transportation and food. This is state-level acting. Now, the question becomes, who's doing it? Is right. it an outside state actor, or is it a faction from within? And that's the question. It is. The other thing to keep in mind, everybody, is, is that, um, you know, because I've worked in the industry, for every firm that you know has been hacked, you've got many others who aren't. Uh, I encountered a number of times on projects where we were just, you know, they call it a go live or an activation. We'd been spending many months trying to build out a, a major system, you know, financial accounting or, or design and development of products, whatever it might be. And we're a week or two away. And like a go live is a major deal. Like, you know, my folks and I are like literally sleeping in the data center. There's no wake up a, little, a few hours late and log in at 10 a.m. and see how things are going. I mean, it's 24 by 7 to make sure that nothing goes wrong. And I suddenly have lawyers from a number of my major commercial clients showing up saying, hey, yeah, uh, we couldn't really tell you this when you won the, the bid for this work. Uh, and we didn't even tell the people from our company that you're working with because I need you to sign this non-disclosure agreement. But you see, we were hacked a couple of times just last year. And so what you all are deploying, we need to, like, we're telling you late in the game, but it's like we need you to penetrate, test what you're doing to make sure that there's no gaps or holes or what we call a port. There's a port open on some server somewhere by which somebody might be able to get into the system and get to our data. And it, it would really slow things down because there's only a handful of approved companies who do that work. Sometimes it takes six months to, to get them. You know, I'd be looking at the client saying, well, you got to come up with another $10 million to cover the next you know, three months. And there's a lot of yelling and screaming and grown adults are losing their minds. But it's, it's, they've all been hit. 
And they, they've all got lawyers and high-end IT security firms that are trying to make sure. no. Because if, if it becomes public that you've been hacked, depending on who the company is, your liability insurance rates, trust me, folks, I've been in the right. room with this. Is, you got it, my friend. They go through the ceiling. Yep. So if Bloom Global's been hit, and that most probably came about simply because all their clients, who some of whom might even be competitors, started calling each other saying, hey, is it just us? Are you guys unable to get into the application when you try and hit the web address? There's always, for every one you hear about, there's another 10 you don't know about. So in keeping with kind of, is this just people using us as, as uh, guinea pigs or, or is there more going on here? I wanted to go back to the uh, Frank Herbert, the author of Dune, and the artificial intelligence topic, and even some of the stuff that V and I often talk about with Neil Stevenson. Um, I want to read to all of you uh, an excerpt from Dune. Now, the 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 writing is 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 a little is going to be a little weird because yeah. it's it's very very esoteric. But I'm going somewhere with this, so just give me a little room. Um, the Dune books reference because it's you know 30,000 years in, in human history the dune books talk about a period of time as part of the canon of the storyline called the butler jirian jihad when yep. human beings rose up against thinking machines or, or what we would AI. call ai yep. exactly and i want to read this as it references the attitudes and beliefs of certain global leaders private equity senior business and government leaders various intellectuals etc uh, case in point, you know, why I often reference this. Why did Peter Thiel invest in Facebook when it started? Not because he was trying to make money. And, and I don't want to put down just Peter Thiel. There's a whole bunch of people who think this way. But but he and a lot of very wealthy, very well-read, very informed people uh, had certain ideas about the ways in which people would react to certain situations. And he thought Facebook would be a great way to basically, for lack of a better word, test out those theories. So to quote from the book, Prelude to Rebellion. Meanwhile, a thinking machine, Erasmus, had put a bet experiment with the machine Omnius, who had created Erasmus, concerning the predictability of human beings. Erasmus proposed to randomly select some loyal human trustees and demonstrate that he could turn them against the thinking machines to prove whether or not human beings are reliable to the machines and could be trusted. Erasmus, always with the consent of Omnius, who watched the procedure of the experiment, started to spread rumors among the human trustees on Earth about an instigation. Ebli Ginjo was a receiver of such a message and consulted Kagator Eklo about its origins. Eklo told him that if someone would proceed to such a movement, the best way to unite the human people would be under the concept of a holy war. Charismatic Ginjo reconsidered his role in the enslavement of humanity and embraced the concept, but was ignorant of the origins of the messages he was receiving. He started to spread seeds of rebellion and secretly igniting boiling restlessness across Earth. He also had prepared core groups of people at major sites with their respective leaders in advance. Ginjo was in charge of a major construction project called the Titan's Freeze and had secretly implanted explosive devices. After Serena became one of Erasmus' slaves, and he much loved her, her child was killed by Erasmus one night. This outrageous event seemed inconceivable by the slaves, and heedless of her danger, Serena hurled herself against a sentinel robot, shoving it out of the balcony, and as it slammed on the ground, 
She even pounded Erasmus with her fists. The simmering resentment of the human slaves boiled over. The slaves called out her name as a rallying cry, as a woman who destroyed a robot with her own hands. Primed by Ginjo's instructions and subtle manipulations over the past months, the slaves exploded and began the Butlergerian Jihad. Now, the point of that is, is it's much like Pandora's box. The thinking machines were simply conducting an experiment on human beings to determine how loyal would they be and what's their breaking point. The experiment got out of hand. It led to the downfall of the machines themselves. Now, one could replace artificial intelligence machines with globalists if you wanted to. And equally consider what I just read in terms of, for those of you who remember, the genocide in 1994 in Africa between the Hutus and the Tutsis. There's a lot of information that has come out now that has said that both groups were manipulated in advance to game out or test out what would what would it take to cause the two of them to go at each other. Or for that matter, the Arab Spring or things Silicon Valley has been doing the past 20 years. This isn't hyperbole. So just a thought. Uh, let's see here. I've got some websites I wanted to go over. So bear with me just a second. Um, let's see here. Get the sharing thing going. Can you see that one? Yes. Okay, very good. Pull it up. So a couple of websites here, folks. Um, the first is is this one, and I'll, I'll post them to uh, Discord. Um, always do your research before you do anything legally. Um, and this is, you know, this is a highly simplistic website, but it's, it's got some good stuff here, uh, about, and I know, I know a certain somebody in the audience is going to say that's nowhere near enough. Uh, yes, I know that, but, um, it's got various flow charts and diagrams that'll walk you through how to, how to do these things, how to bring, how to get a court order, how to argue effectively, how to use a deposition, how to write a pleading, et cetera. But this is basically to just walk you all through how do you do this stuff? Everything from family court to to other types of uh, legal things you might find yourself involved in. And then the next one, bear with me just a moment. The next one is, come on. I apologize. I should have opened these before we started the show. My bad. Although I tend, I tend to be having better luck with this than Matthew Errett sometimes. <laughs> so um, the next one I want to show you is uh, how to file a complaint. Come on. How to file a complaint with... the FBI... And you see this page. Is it up, V? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so here's a site that shows you how to file a complaint with the FBI. And it goes through the types of complaints, et cetera, reporting to the U.S. Attorney's Office, et cetera, the Inspector General. Um, and this is this is whether... You need the FBI's help with something you're dealing with, or the FBI's the problem. <laughs> um, 
The next one here is the Department of Justice. Uh, let me scroll in a little bit. And this is all the detail. You know, you gotta love you gotta love federal agencies because they'll if you do the if you do the uh, research if you do the time, they'll explain to you how to, for lack of a better word, not to go all Saul Alinsky. They'll explain to you how to how to deal with them. How you know, for lack of a better word, how to how to bring charges against them or how to how to uh, get them in trouble. They'll they'll tell you. You just got to go look. But if you've got a complaint against a Department of Justice employee or Department of Justice uh, organization. Everything from waste or fraud or misconduct, civil liberties, the list, the list goes on. Complaints against the government. Postal Service, and I give credit to our friend of the show, uh, the Postal Inspector General. I know that that sounds like a job that dates back to the 1950s, and it kind of does. But, you know, the Postal Service is a funny bunch. Um, I worked with them a little bit when I was working with Homeland Security, and one of the problems the Postal Service has is the government, as I know they're contradicting themselves when I say this, but the government's got very strict rules about federal agencies cannot directly compete with existing businesses in the U.S. economy. So the Postal Service was in place before Federal Express uh, or DHL or other firms came into being. But the Postal Service has tried for years to expand into other areas, everything from package delivery, even working with Amazon or what have you just to try and stop the hemorrhaging of all the money they keep losing. And the problem time they try, it's like, nope, you can't do that postal service because you'd be competing with these businesses or whatever. But the postal service loves to get involved. If somebody has been misusing the mail, uh, if somebody has been transporting something, uh, the postal uh, inspector general loves to get involved in anything where they can make you and themselves money. So there's a site here, and they, they go through you know how to do it online, if there's mail fraud, theft, what have you. Uh, this site will explain to you in detail how to, how to do that stuff. Um, another favorite of mine, which is dealing with attorneys general of, uh, at a state level, how to conf- file a uh, complaint with the attorney general. And then there's other sites that will explain to you what to do uh, if, if the attorney general themselves is the problem and, and how you deal with them. So how to, how to deal with, with uh, small claims court going all the way up to working through resolution of the issue, et cetera. And again, these sites are out there. It's just a function of, uh, it's just a function of finding them. And again, I'll, I will post them. Um, I will post them for you uh, on uh, discord a little later. And then I got one more here. I'm amazed. Browser has not blown up. Um, here's one from the Liberty News that shows uh, how to go after Soros-backed district attorneys. Um, not going to go through this, but there's a lot of detail here on on how to do that. Um, and then I got another one here. I've got two actually. Uh, these kind of dovetail into the first two. Uh, or the first website I showed you a moment ago. So this is another legal forms website. Uh, And it's everything. Do you need to change your name? Do you want power of attorney? 
Uh, not to be indelicate, I ran into that myself with with a loved one the last couple of years where I needed medical power of attorney and similar. Fortunately, in that situation, I had somebody that was very versed in that and had a form I could use, et cetera. But everything from landlords and tenants to liability to living wills to contracts, uh, non-disclosure agreements, et cetera. But then the other thing, what kind of forms would you need? I know, and it's like a lot of things. I know small claims court seems seems spooky if you've never done it before. But that's what these websites are here for, is to kind of help you walk walk through that. Here's another one. Starting a business or planning your estate. Um, for those of you who may remember way back when, the Peter Lowe seminars, he was a guy that helped support uh, small business owners and stuff. He used to do these Zig Ziglar shows around the United States. Um, many, many of those shows, people would always say the same thing, which is... Um, the number one thing you should do is go out and make yourself a limited liability corporation uh, or whatever. And I, I will post those folks on, on the discord page. So don't, don't worry if you couldn't uh, catch that. Uh, and, and yes, crypto cowboy radio. I, I agree <laughs> with your sentiment. Um, but um, there's a lot of sites out there that are very helpful. They can get you uh, kind of a baseline before you start, you know, working through these things. Uh, the resources are there. Uh, there's, there's other people, as I, as I said on last week's show, there's folks that you can pay them a couple of bucks for an hour of their time and say, look, I've researched this, yada, yada, yada. I think this is the appropriate way to go. What, what are the gotchas and what might I have missed, uh, in what I'm trying to do? But you can, you can do these things yourself. I know it's a little scary, but you can do these things yourself. And as I often say, the biggest, the biggest thing of all is that, uh, you're better, uh, you're better informed on how to, how to do these things, how these things work. Um, you know, I, I was in a situation once where, where I had to go, um, testify in a court case. And I remember asking my attorney, I said, well, is there a way that, that you can walk me through a dry run? And my, my attorney kind of looked at me and goes, uh, we can't go there. Uh, cause that would be a problem. And, and that would be kind of a, uh, you know, they're going to ask you on the stand how much time you spent with me, but that's just a lawyer trying to rally your cage. Um, and so uh, what I did was I contacted a different attorney completely separate from my case. And I just said, look, I'm up for an hour of your time. Here's what I got going on. Walk me through the kinds of questions and the gotchas that the, the other attorney may try, and, may try and pull on me. So shifting gears from that topic, uh, the latter half of today's show, and I, I know I've hit this topic a couple times, um, but it's the Robert Kennedy book thing again. Uh, and it isn't, it isn't because like, you know, it's often the case with even, even fiction books that like, you know, the book's kind of slow, but you get into the last half and it's like, Whoa, wow, this is, this is really great stuff. Um, but Kennedy went in a, in a bit of a different direction at the tail end of the book. And I just wasn't going to let this ride. The other thing is, is that this content I'm about to walk through is critical to stuff I'm going to do, uh, in the weeks to come about Rockefeller, uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller, as well as Bill Gates and kind of how we got to where we are today, because a lot of this started with with Rockefeller. So some data points out of the last half of the book. Um, the pharmaceutical firms, as of 2020, have spent $10 billion a year, with a B, on advertising and influence peddling with media firms. That's per year. Mm-hmm. And with that kind of money, who's going to air programs critical of the industry? Uh Bill Gates's investments in the media have also done their job because after a highly critical news story in the Los Angeles Times a few years ago where they, the Los Angeles Times dug into 
Gates's foundation involvement in Africa and inoculations who, who didn't quite work well. And it was a very well-written piece. But the problem is, is that then Gates started investing in the Los Angeles Times. And that's the last you'll ever hear uh, of them criticizing him. Um, beyond that example, there are numerous media outlets who just in Bill Gates' situation alone receive over $250 million a year in grants. Yeah. The most extreme of these examples is the Guardian news outlet in the United Kingdom. Their entire global development section of their news organization's reporting comes directly from the Gates Foundation. The Gates Foundation writes their content for them. A term that was used in the book a couple of times, but but Kennedy kind of gets into it at the latter half in more detail, is what he calls philanthrocapitalism. Now, oversimplified, if we go back to John D. Rockefeller and Rockefeller-funded programs, the Rockefeller Foundations would fund campaigns in foreign countries around health improvement programs. These programs avoided anything that was complex or costly or time-consuming. One could even say effective. Mm. Most were programs who could be quickly deployed with quantifiable targets like numbers of farm fields that were sprayed, individuals inoculated, etc. These programs often stimulated economic activity in these countries' economies, which would foster the growth of Rockefeller assets because the Rockefellers are already on the ground. This model is basically what Bill Gates has been mimicking in many situations. And in Gates' case, he's made significant investments in several drug companies, along with the media organizations I alluded to earlier. Gates holds stock or bonds, significant stock or bonds, in the following pharmaceutical firms. Those include Merck, GSK, Eli Lilly, Pfizer, mm-hmm. Novartis, and Sanofi. And, of course, I would note that former Vice President Mike Pence has an extensive history with Eli Lilly, given Lilly's Indiana roots. Dr. Fauci essentially has his own standing army of resources when it comes to medical exploitation and media suppression. Now, we kind of talked about this a little bit on a prior show. The NIH and Health and Human Services commands a budget of $42 billion, and they distribute over 50,000 financial grants, individual grants, 50,000 of them, supporting over 300,000 medical positions globally. And that's thousands of doctors, hospital administrators, health officials, and researchers whose jobs, professional lives, and reputations are dependent upon that money and that network of people. There's also many times very strict non-disclosure agreements with penalty language around them if you talk about what you know. It's kind of an army of the undead. I would also like to note there's a name has been missing in some of my prior coverage of this topic, including a number of the articles that are out there in the alternative news space or other folks who've done their own little podcasts on this. We'll often hear about Fauci. We'll hear about Gates. We'll hear about Gates and Fauci's relationship. But there's somebody who's kind of missing in that mix. And that person who's missing is Warren Buffett. Buffett has been part of the pharmaceutical efforts of Bill Gates for decades, especially since their business relationship has become public knowledge. I love the little PR thing the two of them used to do by appearing on CNBC quite frequently, especially when I used to go to the the gym in the morning because of of the work I was doing. I'd hit the gym before I went to the client site. I would would catch these interviews with the woman reporter they used to call the money honey, uh, where she would be interviewing them both while they're out in Colorado because they're going to be speaking at some conference. Thanks to this book and a lot of the work we've been doing here at Rogue, there's a lot more content now that we all can be aware of about what's what's going on behind that. 
Um, also, have no illusions about Bill's soon-to-be ex-wife, Melinda, either. Uh, her fingerprints are on a number of the medical programs and media organizations that are out there. Mm. Now, the history of pharmaceutical firms in Africa after World War II, you could argue, was almost worse than the colonialism that preceded it. Oh, yeah. When, when I was working with that private consulting practice in Washington, as I shared with all of you, we had retired C-level executives from, from Fortune 50 firms on our staff. A number of my pharmaceutical executives told me over dinner on several occasions that they said, we've been using Africa as a test lab, especially since the 1980s. Mm. Now, most of these folks were finance or IT people, so it's not like they were running those operations, but they knew darn well what was going on. Now, out of the book, 90% of drug development costs are in what are called phase three human trials. Therefore, another reason why these are often conducted in Africa is it's cheaper any harm caused during development doesn't have an impact to the time to market, and litigation is non-existent. At this so, point, so loving, so loving, so caring, so um, liberal. <laughs> so at this point, the thing that really we got to get into our minds is the fact that, for all intents and purposes, the World Health Organization is Bill Gates. Now he achieved yeah. this slowly. He increased his foundation funding to the organization slowly over time. Now, recall what I said about Mike Moore's intelligence last February, where Moore was kind of warning that he said there's a forthcoming uh, World Health Organization or WHO uh, uh, policy that they want to pass, where they're going to bypass governments and deal with, with global citizens directly. Now, when Moore said that last February, I didn't doubt what he was saying, but my thought was, geez, I wonder how they're going to do that. Well, we're living it right now. Um, many former WHO officials, you know, and as I've often said, it's kind of like the folks who left the FDA or the people who resigned when I was at uh, Health and Human Services. These were folks that their politics, their belief systems probably don't gel with most of us here on the show. But there's a point at which they care about the agency. They care about what the agency is supposed to be achieving. And in the end, they don't want to hurt people. We may disagree with them about economics and politics, but on the whole, there's still good people trying to do what they think is the right thing to do. That's why we've had all these resignations from these organizations. There's a number of people who've resigned from the World Health Organization because of Gates's involvement. And one of the main reasons why they did was the original mission of the World Health Organization was to alleviate poverty, improve nutrition, and improve water quality. Because if you really look at what improved the cutting back of disease outbreaks, both just prior to World War II and after, inoculations wasn't really a big part of that. Clean water and clean food did, did wonders. And this goes to the other show where I was talking about the fact that you have a lot of researchers who believe that if you've got a very strong immune system, you don't really need inoculations to the degree that these people are arguing that you do. But since Gates has gotten involved, almost the sole mission of the World Health Organization at this point is just inoculations. It's all they talk about. And over half of the World Health uh, Organization budget right now is earmarked for vaccines. It's also worth noting, it was Bill Gates, not China who picked Tedros Ghebreyesus as the World Health Organization Director General. Now, I think I did, and if I hadn't, mea, mea culpa. Tedros, I, I know this guy because of my background with human rights work. He Ted, did such Ted, a good job in Ethiopia with the yeah, cholera outbreak. It was just amazing, amazing. The, the definition guy, of, of, of failing forward. 
this guy's got so much blood on his hands it isn't even funny. And yeah, I, I also love the fact that he's uh, his 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 education is in social work, which is even makes him more of a doctor, you know. Right. Well, and there was a lot of dust up about by various groups about Tedros because they kept connecting China with it and it and again, in my opinion, that was by design. That was kind of a psyop on people to say, "Oh, China is involved in uh, putting this butcher into this role." Nope. It wasn't China. It was Bill Gates. That's right. And Gates has made sure to sustain a lock on drug patents. It's why, and there's a number of TV clips you could go see on YouTube where they would ask him and say, well, Bill, wouldn't it be better to have these drugs produced at the source? If we're truly dealing, if truly, <laughs> as, as my Indian colleagues used to, used to constantly say to me in Silicon Valley whenever we were getting into a de- debate or discussion over something, yes, but truly, if we're trying to uh, fix the problem, Bellis, would we not want to do the following? Um, Gates, on several occasions when they've said, truly, sir, wouldn't it make more sense to produce the drugs in these countries where they're most needed? Uh, And every single time, Gates has said, absolutely not, because he's trying to protect the patents and the the money they're making. Yep. Now, the back half... So love it. The, The back half of the book is a lot of detail that we've got an unbroken history of wealthy and powerful people towards one of my favorite words, the goals of eugenics since the late 1800s now manifested in Bill Gates and others. And again, that's not hyperbole. The first part of that, and it's, it's a little of the history here of the United States. We got to come to terms with just prior to the end of world war two. And even, even a few years following there were 27 U S states who had eugenics laws on their books And a number of those laws included forced sterilization. They believe the total number of forced sterilization in the United States prior to World War II is is up to or higher than 60,000 people. Yep. A considerable number. And that's that's before we even get into all the other other crap that was going on uh, during those years with uh, the various eugenic societies and so on. And I've covered on other shows that, you know, you hear the word transhumanism, that's eugenics. Um, and I know V has brought this up himself. Um, a lot of Bill Gates' ideas on these things came from his father, Bill Sr. Uh, Bill Sr. Gates uh, was involved in population control going way back. And it's not just his involvement in Planned Parenthood. They'll often use the redirect and force people's attention on Planned Parenthood that that Bill Sr. and Bill Gates Jr. were involved in Planned Parenthood. That that's not it. His dad also had his own foundation of his uh, separate from from uh, Bill Junior's that that we're more familiar with. Um, Bill Gates Junior has stated throughout his lifetime he has major concerns regarding overpopulation, and in 2010, Bill Gates stated in a public TED talk he believed vaccines were an excellent means to reduce global populations by delivering in the vaccine. Uh, drugs that would chemically sterilize you, which I find find interesting because I know a number of you on the Discord channel have been have been posting the uh, Indian activist uh, from India, the the woman who I'm pretty sure she was the one who appeared in the movie uh, or the documentary The Corporation, where her her bit in the in the documentary The Corporation was she kept focusing in on the fact that Monsanto and other major corporations started, especially in the third world, delivering seeds. Uh, that because they were genetically modified, rather than risk their intellectual capital be stolen, 
i.e. you keep seeds uh, from the plants or the other foods that you're growing. They made the plants sterile. Yep. So you can only, seeds. yes, you can only grow one crop of it. And she said, you know, and her comment in the documentary was something to the effect of she couldn't imagine a more insidious move by major corporations than to de- deny people the ability to collect seeds. I've even covered on another show. I've watched a number of documentaries on this topic, especially out, again, out here in the Midwest. Sharing of seeds uh, and food products is as old as time. Yep. And the reason why farmers have done it going back to the ancient world is you need food diversity. The reason why our potato crop got wiped out in the 1970s and why we, we when that happened, we had to get most of our potatoes out of Mexico is because the United States right now only grows about one or two varieties of potato in the interest of large-scale farming and production. That makes disease, disease outbreaks a lot easier. There's a lot of, you want to use the word food insecurity. It's not just your access to food. It's the fact that stuff we grow in the United States doesn't have the diversity it used to. One of the examples I often cite is, is the thing about apples. If you go back to the 1930s and you went to a farmer's market, and obviously it was kind of regional depending on whether that was Washington State or uh, the Northeast or wherever you were sourcing your apples. But the United States had like 30 different varieties of apples that you could get all across the country when our parents and grandparents were, were doing their thing uh, here in those years. In today's world, you've got five or six, maybe a few more, but you don't have anywhere near the genetic diversity in the food we used to have. Well, when it comes to these foods and these seeds, uh, these seed stocks being transported around the world, there's not a lot of genetic diversity. And if they catch you (laughs) storing any of these seeds or anything else, you're like in violation of various contracts. I've also brought up on other shows that Farmers in Canada have been trying to battle this out in court for years with Monsanto. They finally did get a victory about two or three years ago. But it's, it's a very uh, hard-fought battle. You could make the argument that Gates and others like him, especially with these various inoculations programs they have, are thinking in the same terms when it comes to human beings. So in the late 1990s, a number of Catholic publications accused the World Health Organization and others of vaccine campaigns whose true purpose was chemical sterilization. Now, at that time, it was the belief that that was being done through global tetanus shots. The World Health Organization acknowledged at the time they were developing vaccines whose purpose is sterilization. And another area where Bill's been involved heavily is uh, HPV vaccines, especially for school kids human papillary virus vaccines. Now, I'm noting this because I've had some disagreements even within my own family. Those shots were never intended for men or for young boys. Those were intended for women because of the nature of the disease. But then we started this whole campaign where it's like, well, uh, both young men and young women should take the stuff. Gates Foundation money has been involved in many U.S. schools who now are changing their policies to state you can't attend school unless your kid's got an HPV shot. The last chapter of the book cites a few medical events, whether the 1976 swine flu, the 2005 bird flu, 2009 Hong Kong swine flu, the 2016 Zika virus, and that's just a sampling. There's a whole bunch of them that, that Kennedy identifies. And he goes through them and identifies that each one appeared to have a whole media campaign behind it to kind of overblow the situation and moving a global narrative that we're heading towards a future illness that's going to be worse than all the others. And when that comes around, we're going to need a global inoculation campaign. 
where the the whole thing is like a giant psychological uh, operations program. My final comment about Kennedy's book, because after I got done reading it and was kind of writing up my notes here, um, it kind of it kind of hit me that I thought um, if if you really you know I've said this on other shows I, I kind of use the analogy about the the Roswell thing where I said if you were writing a book in the fifties or sixties or seventies and you were talking about certain topics with Roswell, even though some of the topics might sound inflammatory or even quote unquote truthful, the powers that be wouldn't really get out of their chair. But it's like, if you hit certain topics on that subject, you might find your mails piling up at your mailbox and no one knows what the hell happened to you simply because you said something that to you may not sound like a big deal, but to the people who are behind these things, that's a major push button for them. And so I also, CJ made a comment yesterday, and I, I totally get where he was coming from, where he was saying, um, I wouldn't use the word so what, that's unfair. But, you know, CJ was basically saying like, okay, you, you got these people and they're, they're putting out these documentaries or they're, they're writing articles or whatever. And, you know, CJ's position was, was well, we know that. And it's, you know, I would qualify and say, yes, you're absolutely right. And even, even when I heard that show, I reached over and grabbed my copy, copy of the book Compromised and was just kind of thumbing through the back of, of the cited sources. When you have a book like Compromised, which gets into the Clintons, the arms, the drugs, you know, guns going into South America, drugs coming out of South America, and uh, Oliver North's involvement in the whole, the whole food chain of those people. That book was, was earth-shattering. That was, uh, was Peter Schweitzer's book, wasn't it? Uh, I don't think it was Schweitzer. Okay. Let me make sure my cord can reach over this far as I look over on my bookshelf. That was Terry Reed and John Cummings. Got it. Okay. Um, so, but the problem is, I know a lot of people would say, well, God, you look at that book and it's all there. And it's like, right. But see, the problem is, and this is kind of like when I used to deal with academia, it's one source. It's one guy with a lot of credentials, and he's got a lot of documents he's scanned in there, but he doesn't have any other secondary information. You can go through the index in the back and find references to Oliver North and stuff, but it's like it's his take on what happened. He has the documents he used. We're getting back to the Robert Kennedy thing. Just bear with me. He's got the documents that he used in court, but that's still just him. So it's like, well, we know that. Yeah, but it's one guy. But then you add... Ambrose Evans Pritchard and the Secret Life of Bill Clinton. And you get into a number of other books. And if you really want to get 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 it going on, uh, you can get any of the books that are titled The Medusa Files, one and two, and some of the others that are out there. And now you have a much deeper body of data. And so it's like with fairness to all of you and our audience or others out there, because I've had so many discussions with many of you on the Discord channel. Some of you, I wouldn't say are new to this, but like you got a thing for you that's your thing. Could be Bigfoot, uh, could could be uh, the international banking cartels, could could be whatever it might be, and shows like ours at Rogue are kind of helping you you know broaden out into other areas. So I, I totally get where CJ was coming from, and I understand what he's saying. But for me, the added thing is we we need these other articles that are being published. We need uh, you know websites like Covert News and others that do. Uh, academic level research into topics like the Clintons, which by the way, in a future show, I will be getting into some, 
some less known things about Bill and Hillary. I will be getting into some things about uh, Kissinger's influence on uh, Soros and uh, Fauci and others. So back to the Kennedy thing. As I was reading Kennedy's book, I thought that goes right to what CJ was talking about. I know there are people that will say, well, we've heard all this. We've heard all this. We know about the eugenics thing. You know, I've listened to Matthew Arrett. Matthew's got, you know, he's got very detailed history, which we need deeply about eugenics and who was behind it and where it was going and this, that, and the other. The advantage of Kennedy's book, although I have a slight, I wouldn't say bone to pick, but I have a slight kind of, oh, geez, Robert, couldn't you have just, you know, fill in the blank. The only issue I've got with Kennedy's book is he's got all his footnotes at the end of each chapter. And it's basically his cited sources, but he doesn't have an index in the back where I can, I can say, okay, I I need to read, of course, that would be a a whole section of the book itself. I need to read just about the sections on Fauci and the pharmaceutical firm. Where where are those pages? Which, which is why my copy of the book is littered with post-it notes and, and all of my, my pen writing all over the pages. Um, But as I was reading Kennedy's book and as I finished Kennedy's book, um, his conclusions at the back you know, it's like a lot of things we cover here on Rogue, folks. Whether it's V's work, CJ's work, Matthew Arrett's work. We can say the words. We can say, well, but there appears that we have every reason to believe. It's like me, it's like me looking at executives asking me, Vellis, we want 100% certainty before we drop $10 million on the following, that this is going to work. And it's like, that's like me proving to you that Osama bin Laden is at the location we think he is. I can, I can only get you within a 60 to 70% range. After, after that, it's a crap show. You know, we, we may hit the wrong target. I don't know. Um, Kennedy's book was so cited by its sources globally, so many sources around the world on each of these chapters and what they cover. And each of the chapters are almost kind of like a standalone. And the fact that eugenics is not just a historical thing. It isn't. And again, I, I think, as weird as this sounds, um, I thank Gene Roddenberry. Honest, I'm not pulling any of your legs. I'm dead serious. I thank Gene Roddenberry for the fact that in the original Star Trek series in the 1960s, he had so many episodes. Because I, I told you, I heard from some people in Washington, D.C. that they were like, hey, you were a fan of, of the old Star Trek episodes. It's like, right? It's like, got to tell you, man, you talk to certain people, and uh, man, they would have they would have done anything within their power to put a bullet through the back of Gene Roddenberry's head. It's like, <laughs> Really? Why? Because he kept bringing up eugenics. He had episode after episode where Spock and Kirk are talking about, well, you see, Captain, this was much like the eugenics wars on Earth. I mean, that's that's what the whole con thing is about. We we genetically designed a super leader who then went on a major kick to take over the world. The the thing about eugenics, folks, is it never stopped. It's been called different things. And so it's an oversimplification to say that Kennedy's book is about eugenics. Because it's way, way deeper than that. But in conclusion, I found it amusing, interesting, fascinating, a, a definite chin rubber, that as I completed the book and I was sitting here writing up my notes, I thought, isn't it interesting? Because for many people reading Kennedy's book, they might be shocked. For other people reading Kennedy's book, it's like, well, this is more source data about what we already kind of suspected or what we already knew. But I thought, here's a guy, Robert Kennedy, where the globalist community, the details and the who and the why and the what are, are forever being worked on to get to the bottom of it. But the globalist community in one way or another had a hand in killing his father 
Robert Kennedy in 68 and his uncle, John F. Kennedy. And so to me, Robert Kennedy's book is a giant middle finger to these people because I thought, why would Kennedy, even though, yes, he has a, he has a heavy background in, in uh, the medical world and so on. But I thought, why would a Kennedy step out into traffic? And there's a reason why I'm saying that and start going after the globalists where their bread and butter is on their goals and write a book. Again, this book isn't the definitive end all be all, but it's close. Why would a Kennedy risk so much to put their, their uh, reputational capital, if you will, on the line to, to write this book and get this, get this book out there. I've had a number of people I know personally who do or don't listen to our show and, and have said to me, um, the book, uh, for those of you that are asking, is the real, the real Anthony Fauci by Robert Kennedy, and it's deceptive. It doesn't look like a very big book, but the print is very small. Um, uh, and and definitely read read the sections at the end of each chapter. But there's a lot to be said about John F. Kennedy's son, uh, John Kennedy Jr. or or John John. There's a lot of people who have raised questions saying. You know, and again, it's easy to say, well, they killed him. Well, the plane crash was an accident. Well, no, it wasn't. He and his, his wife were on drugs and this, that, and the other, and he shouldn't have been flying in those conditions. That's a separate matter. But the point is, John F. Kennedy Jr. was building a media empire. Now, we here on Rogue have said this a million times, don't get lost in translation. The ability to reach people and get them actionable intelligence, to, to paraphrase Mike Moore, is one of the most dangerous things there are out there. I mean, I'm saying this in a joking way, but but it's not hyperbole. What we're doing at Rogue is dangerous. It's why I've got a. I joke with V and CJ about this all the time. Why I like there's stuff I want to cover with all of you, and it's like, oh, geez, no, I can't. Nope. I can't go there. Can't I can I can hear the phone call now. No, <laughs> I'm yeah, not, I'm not going there. I know Matthew. I've had conversations with Matthew Arrett where he's like, yeah, Vellis, and I know exactly what you're talking about, and you and I both know we're just not we're not going to touch that topic. There's folks out there who've said that it's like uh, John Kennedy uh, had plans. John Kennedy was building through George Magazine uh, a way to reach the public, to talk to the public, and bypass the media. That's dangerous because the intelligence community runs the media. And from the Wayback Machine is the uh, – I've, I've mentioned this before. This is Christopher Fulton and Michael Fulton who wrote the book, The Inheritance, Poisoned Fruit of the JFK Assassination. This, this was a, a critical book about um, John F. Kennedy's death because this gets into why is the government so jacked up about anything that concerns the personal effects that John F. Kennedy was wearing that day? What is there about the material that it may have picked? You know, and This goes to the thing about mercury. Why is everybody so concerned about the public being aware of the fact that, that John F. Kennedy had mercury on his body after the shooting? And what came out in that book is John Kennedy, before he died, was talking because the author got thrown in prison. They tried to break him because he had he had a watch and a couple of personal effects of John F. Kennedy. And it's like, man, what, you know, (laughs) please see the Roswell topic. What's got you guys so jacked up? About a a, and and the, the key takeaway about the watch was is it had a leather strap. And leather tends to absorb materials and, and will continue to, to be a source, uh, an evidence source for years later because uh, leather will not only last, but it, it tends to absorb liquids and things. 
John Kennedy was talking to the author of that book at length because it was, <laughs> drumroll, it was Donald Trump who through the Trump organization was, was managing the, the uh, they were going to have an auction of a number of the items to raise money for a new museum for the Kennedys. But the book goes into detail about private meetings John Kennedy had with the author. And he was nervous and he felt the work the author was doing was, was critical because the Kennedy family is aware of things they just can't make public. Right. And so you could make the argument whether John Kennedy died in a plane crash due to his own fault or not is not really the issue. The issue is John Kennedy had plans. John Kennedy was going somewhere and yeah. he was stopped. So Robert Kennedy gets this because the other thing, too, is Robert Kennedy got the book published and then came the media campaign. So it's like mm -hmm. he got it out before anybody realized what the hell he was doing. And you better believe they want this book to go in the memory hole. So yes. for those of you asking, I'll, I'll post these different books on, on Discord and you can look it up later. But that's, that's today's show. I've got, I've got next week's show almost completely, completely <laughs> developed already. But uh, uh, V, any, any uh, comments on your part before we come? No, you did a great job, man. Uh, no, you did uh, perfect. You ran through the whole gambit of information, and there's a lot to take in there, folks. I always recommend that you go back and listen to this broadcast one more time with a notebook handy because it is chock full of information. And uh, with that being said, I want to thank all of you for listening in. Yep. Thank you for coming on. And, folks, Velas will be back next week on another explosive episode. And you guys, everyone, everywhere, enjoy your weekends. We're over and out.